You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for intellectually curious adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak, as she sits down for a conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Ryan Garlick, a computer science professor at UNT. Dr. Garlick earned his PhD from Southern Methodist University in Dallas his Master of Science in Computer Science from Texas State University, and a BBA in Finance with Honors from UT at Austin. Welcome, Dr. Garlick. Thank you very much. Anyone who gets a degree in finance with honors earns my respect right out the bat. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, after learning about your background, there are so many, very, very many things to be impressed by. So let's cut right to the chase. Uh, You were part of the code team on a five-part series by the History Channel called The Hunt for the Zodiac Killer. For those of us who don't remember, can you tell us about the Zodiac Killer? Yeah, the the Zodiac Killer was a serial killer who was active in Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s, claimed to have killed upwards of of 30 people. Mm. They can prove that he killed five based on evidence that only he knew, mailing pieces of one of his victim's shirts into the police and so forth. It's an intriguing case because it's basically the biggest unsolved serial killer case that there is. And it's very tantalizing because he communicated frequently with the police, with newspapers, and always tried to get his messages published in the newspapers, even corresponded with an attorney and possibly some of the victim's families. Oh my goodness. And there's a lot of evidence. There were eyewitnesses to some of the crimes. Some of them were children. And we don't have a perfect description, but he may have even been seen by the police, left some physical evidence, and yet we don't know who it was. So some of the messages that he communicated to the newspapers were in coded form. One of those has been deciphered, the others have not. It's a very interesting case because you think now with all that we know about this, with all the research that's been done, with all the people working on it on the internet. All the computers. Right, yeah. With, with all the resources that we've put to this case that if we were able to solve one of these ciphers, there may be some information in it that would help us ultimately solve the crimes. He teased that my identity is in these ciphers and so forth. And, you know, we sort of doubt that there's a home address in the ciphers, but there may be a clue that, you know, later research has uncovered is important that he didn't realize he was giving away some information at the time that might help help solve the ultimately solve the case. I had read that the first code he sent was deciphered in about a week. Right. Really quickly by, um, there were were two independent solutions. One was the Hardens, and they're fairly well known as having solved it. It was a teacher, a couple, and they solved it. They liked working the puzzles in the newspaper and solved it with with sort of some insight on repeating symbols. So these ciphers are just a jumble of symbols, you know, triangle and a circle and a square and 
uh, and even some that looked like English letters or backwards letters, they had the insight that it would start with the letter I because a lot of Zodiac's communications were about himself and how he was so smart and the police were would never catch him. and Some egotism there. Right, right. And that was kind of a downfall because that helped, you know, once you know what the symbol for I is, you can plug that in later. And repeating symbols can be, you know, they're, they're much more likely to be, say, a double L or a double S than two Qs to Together. So you can use some things like that to try to, to break down the cipher and, and figure out what it means. There was also a solution to that first cipher. We call it the 408 cipher because it has 408 symbols in it. That's it's, the first one. Right, okay. right. And the later one is called the 340, 340 symbols in it. And it has not been solved. But the 408, the, the first cipher, had you know some interesting properties to it that we then tried to apply to the later ciphers with no real luck. But someone did mail in another solution, and, and it was essentially the same solution to it. There were a few changes, though, to indicate that it wasn't someone who had seen the hardened solution. It was someone who arrived at basically the same Completely solution. independently. Right, right. And uh, it was mailed anonymously in. And hmm. there's some speculation that that was Zodiac because he just wanted his message to be read and, and couldn't stand that it took longer than 48 hours, you know, or whatever to... So it was the same decoding. It was the same meaning and right. all of that. Okay. Right. Yeah. With a few slight changes. There were, there were a few errors in the decoding, a few misspellings and things like that. So, but it was essentially the same solution. So there's some thought that Zodiac wanted his message known. He always insisted that, you know, this be published on the first page of the newspaper. He even bracketed some sections of his letter and said, publish this part, you know. So, uh, yeah, really wanted his message out there. So that's why the 340 cipher, the second one, is a mystery because there was no solution sent. There's been some speculation that it's just meaningless. But from an analysis standpoint, it is different from the first one. The first one is what we call a homophonic substitution cipher. And that just means that we substitute those symbols for letters. And then homophones come in because if you were to encode a message like that, then you just look for the most frequent symbol, and that's going to be E. That's right? going to be your most frequent letter right. in right. the language, mm -hmm. okay? So to disguise that a little bit, you say, okay, well, the triangle is an E, and a squiggly line also stands for an E. So that makes it harder to solve because then you don't have a most frequent symbol and you can alter the statistics of, of this code language to kind of hide the underlying message. So he would use different symbols for the same letter? Mm -hmm. Right. I noticed he had sent, and I don't want to stop your train of thought, yeah, but true. I had noticed he'd sent in a picture of Alfred E. Newman, so he's kind of making fun of the whole thing, right? What's to stop him from just sending in a code with random symbols that actually make no sense at all but right. it's just to be like ha ha in your yeah. face this really isn't a code there's a there's that's a that's a very real possibility uh, was that it was just to waste the time and resources of the police and keep people spec I mean we're still talking about it you know 50 years later so that's a very real possibility there's some analysis that you could do to determine is this uh, it, just a random set of symbols does it have interesting properties 
One of my colleagues on the show, Dave Aramchak, has done a lot of statistical analysis and found some interesting properties in that if we do things like look at every 19th symbol, <laughs> okay. uh, then the statistics of the language start to look a lot more interesting and more like English. So there's some speculation that we need to alter the cipher as it's presented. In other words, not just read it from top to bottom, left to right, like we might read you know, a page in a book, but that we go in columns or we go backwards or we zigzag or there's some kind of pattern that we need to follow through this page before we arrive at a message that we can then translate into, okay, the half-filled circle is an R and do our translation. Is there any computer program today that exists that can look at something like that and go those different directions and see if there's any syntax from language? Yes. There's a lot of work that's been done in, you know, the field is NLP, natural language processing, and that's really big in all of the home devices, Alexa, and, and all the things that can understand human voice. There's a lot of work with language and with determining if a symbol is a certain letter, you know, the likelihood that the following symbol, in other words, if you have an E, you're likely to have an R afterwards. If you have an S, a T can follow, T-H-E, you know, very common, common words, bigrams they're called, which are just two letter combinations. So if you see T-H and S-T and E-R and E-D, it starts to look like English. If you see Q-P, you're, you're probably on the wrong track. You've got the wrong right. meanings of the symbols. Right. Okay. So software can do all of that sort of thing. It can look through millions or billions of, of possibilities of things and say, okay, let's assign the triangle to A and the circle to B. And now what do we get? You know, can we pull words out of this? And we've done that. We can fairly confidently say that this is not like the first cipher. In other words, it's not just a straight substitution cipher read left to right. There's speculation that could it be in a different language? Could we need mm. to go do things like uh, pull out every every nth character in there and rearrange them? Could it be that we need to go across and then down and back the other row? Do we need to go in columns? Do we need to spiral? Do we, there are lots and lots of possibilities. So we've tried thousands of those kind of transpositions where we say, okay, let's go in columns and start on the right and then move to the left. What if we need to take every other row out? What if the top and the bottom are encoded in two different ways? What's interesting... That's yeah. amazing. I mean, that's just incredible. All the variables in yeah, that. There are lots and it's lots astounding. of possibilities. And, and that's why there's no real kind of one-size-fits-all solution to this where you can say, okay, let's, let's do this. Because every cipher can be encoded in a different way. It could be... One interesting thing is that the 408, the first cipher that was solved, was mailed in three pieces to three separate newspapers. The Zodiac broke it into three parts, and there was no clear indication which was first. So the first step was we had to put them in the right order, right? And the second step was they had to then apply the substitution and say, okay, the plus symbol is an, is an S. To my way of thinking, that indicates that Zodiac has... This idea of, okay, step one is you you move things around, and step two is then you solve How interesting. It. But the second one just came on one sheet of paper altogether. So maybe we have to do 
some sort of manipulation of folding it in half. And you mentioned Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine on the back cover used to have a thing called the fold-in. I remember that. Right, yeah. It was like <laughs> a picture and you would fold it. And yes. uh, when once you folded it, a new message was revealed mm-hmm. and a new picture, right? You know, there are interesting things on the cipher itself. There are things that look like arrows. So like the greater than, less than, an up arrow, down arrow. And there's some speculation that those are directions. So in other words, it's not a letter, but actually means now go down if there's a down arrow. There's no clear path like that, but that's kind of interesting. And it's also sort of divided into quadrants, like four parts, by some dash marks. So if you look at it, and and you can just Google Zodiac 340 and see a copy of the cipher, you'll notice the center symbol is a plus, and then it has uh, dashes on either side and a vertical line at the top and bottom, sort of marking four blocks there. That also kind of mimics his signature, which was crosshair mm-hmm. and a symbol, the symbol from the Zodiac wristwatch. And maybe we have four pieces and we have to put those in a certain order. We tried that also. You know, you can you can always pull little translations of a little sentence that sounds like Zodiac, but we haven't come across anything where a certain key applies to the whole message. Are you so. still working on it now? Yeah, we Do you are. go uh, home and, and <laughs> instead of turning the TV on, do you pull that out <laughs> or what do you do? Uh, it sort of goes in, in waves, I guess, for me. I get motivated again or I'll, I'll read something about that someone's worked on. And There's a really great community of people online who work on things and discover things. People have discovered comic books that Zodiac read where there's a, a one where he signed a card by by knife, by gun, by rope, by fire, I think. And that, those exact phrases appear on this wheel on a comic book. Really? So we're pretty sure that he read that. And those were all discovered just by people online. Yeah, sharing their right, ideas. Right. So we have this community of sleuths working on this nonstop. And, you, you know, you'll pick something up from there and think, oh, well, maybe we can go in this direction. And... Um, I'm doing a directed study this semester with the student who's working on it, and we're working on more of those transpositions of, hey, what if we spiral clockwise from the outside to the inside and, uh, and then apply our substitution? And we've been in communication with, uh, with Dave Ranchak, also from the show, and he has some more ideas since we did that show, and so we're following up on some of those. You have a very fortunate student. That's amazing. What a wonderful thing to be working on. Yeah, it's, it's exciting because uh, I've always liked just the applied computer science where it's not just a theoretical problem from a textbook, but exactly. okay, let's figure out what we need to do to, yeah. to work on this real problem. That's exciting. Well, what got you into that show? Oh, um, there's a movie that came out several years ago, the David Fincher Zodiac movie, which is a very accurate portrayal of the events and it uses the real case files. I had always been interested in the case, um, but that movie, I think, kind of reignited for a lot of people the the spark in trying to find this and just the feeling that, you know, we have these tools now that can run through so many possibilities and try things. And there's been so much research in natural language work that we should be able to apply all of this to this problem. That's why it's so intriguing. It's it just is that, intriguing. You know, yeah. We have so many minds working on this and yet some reluctance among the various police departments to all coordinate and release the information. And on a 50-year-old case, it's hard 
start to, to get access to all of that. Some people have uh, gone in and seen some of the original case files, but there may be something lurking in there. True. You know, each police department wants to be the one that, that solves it, and so they're a little kind of tight-lipped with what they have. And I would think someone like you would have an eye for something that might not mean something to someone who has an expertise in a different field, mm-hmm. but they're just not trained to see what you would see as a code breaker. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who have really dedicated their work and their time to amassing all of the information that's out there and uncovering new things and new leads. And there are a lot of suspects also where a particular aspect of their life looks really interesting. It fits. They were in the area at the time. They could have... Zodiac probably had a military background. And so that may fit with a certain suspect. But yeah, there, there are several people that look like good possibilities. And we just haven't been able to convincingly narrow it to one. So, so you were involved in this. And then you did a special first for National Geographic. Was that through your involvement with this type of code with the Zodiac Killer? Or how did that come about? I wrote an article. There were a lot of people who submit potential solutions to the online community. And a lot of them are you know, interesting and well-meaning, but they'll do some steps that will really allow for almost anything to fit as a potential solution. In other words, if I come up with my favorite suspect, I can make their name fit into the cipher somehow. And if I do things like the word find solution where I just pick out one section of a column and then one section of a row and I can make words from zodiac letters appear in there. And then if I can anagram. You can uh, make it say whatever it is that you really want. Your own personal theory. Yeah. Yeah. So so I wrote a little paper on why you shouldn't do that and how you probably didn't solve it if, if you did those steps and so on. But the thing is, none of us can really say definitively, oh, well, that's not how Zodiac did it, yeah. right? Because maybe he, he didn't understand when he was writing this that if I invent my own language where there are any rules, well, then we can never decipher what you've written in that. Or if I can make any symbol stand for any letter whenever I feel like it, you know, there has to be some sort of pattern that we can go back to and say, okay, yeah. even if he did switch the symbols for letters, well, the circle was A the first time and B the second time and C the third time and so on. But we haven't been able to find any of those so far. What was it like meeting all these other people who share your interest in the shows that you were in? It was great. It was a really neat experience. There was a lot of of talent on the team. Uh, Kevin Knight at USC, who actually solved the Copial Cipher, which was, I believe, a 17th century manuscript from a secret society of optometrists. Is that right? And he (laughs) decoded that. And has done a lot of great work there. There was Sujit from Google, who's quite an accomplished engineer at Google, and uh, Craig Bauer from York College, and David Ranchak. David David Ranchak has really done a lot for creating tools and software that people can use to go out there. I'd I'd encourage anybody to go to his site. It's ZodiacKillerCiphers.com. And you can play with these tools to say, oh, I think this is a decoding, and it'll plug in your letters, and you can read what it might say, and a lot of statistical analysis tools for the ciphers. Also, it was, a, it was a neat experience just to see how shows were made and to be a part of it. Do you stay in touch with the people that you were with? Yeah, yeah. Dave and Craig publishes a journal called Cryptologia, and I've submitted a paper there, so we'll see how that how that works out. But yeah, Dave and I stay in contact pretty regularly, and we did a, a podcast together, a, a true crime podcast. I got to hear that. Oh yeah, that sounds yeah. great. 
What is it that you teach here at UNT? It varies based on semester, but it's usually databases, secure e-commerce, a course called IT Project Management, and then that directed study course this semester. And we're doing one also on human-computer interface. So it's kind of all over the map. Uh, Sounds like some leading-edge type of technology. Well, you know, I, I try to bring tools that are used in the real world in class. So we look at Amazon Web Services and all of the tools that are available there. There are so many great, a lot of times free, tools that the students can use and gain some experience for how industry might set up if we needed a quick database to store, say, high scores in a game app. You know, we could do that quickly and easily. And so I try to incorporate some of those things into the the classroom. And you have a finance background, too. Yes, yeah, it's been a while, uh, but uh, yeah, I've uh, you gotta I've, be a smart guy. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been all over the map in terms of uh, personal kind of interests, and uh, I just get excited about a topic and, and go for it. And you're also doing some expert witnessing for courts. What is that about? Yeah, I've consulted on a few patent cases for uh, intellectual property and. Some trade secret cases where, you know, someone has alleged that someone else has taken their idea or done something that violates a patent. So you'll go in and kind of look at software and say, okay, this looks like it does cover the claims of the patent or does not. So, yeah, I've done some consulting work. What an incredible background you have. I could actually talk to you for hours and hours (laughs) because I can go in any direction here and ask you all kinds of things. You just have an incredible background. Now, you're on the OLLI faculty, and you've taught a course regarding your work with the Zodiac Killer. I did. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, It was out at uh, Robeson Ranch, and we had a great turnout and lots of good questions, and some people who remembered the case from the time. We had a a really nice discussion, and I just kind of presented the slide deck that I've made about this. You know, a lot of people had good ideas, and that's what's really valuable in this, is that there are people who remember the time and the language that was used, and the books that might have been read, and the resources, the things Zodiac might have seen on TV. The culture of the day. That's helpful. To, to know just from a language standpoint, from a history standpoint, from case details. There may be somebody who has a, a deathbed confession someday. You know, a, a lot of the suspects have passed away, but we'll, we'll see. You never know what comes up. How do you compare your students at Ali versus your students that you teach? You have different oh, yeah. levels of you have undergraduates, you have graduates. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, it, it was different teaching at Ali. I always want to call it Olili. <laughs> I kind of like yeah. that, actually. We may have to talk to Stephanie about that. Yeah, I always want to say Olili. But uh, no, the Ali experience was great. I would say there was far far fewer people were texting during the, the talk. <laughs> no, there was great engagement. And there were I don't know, probably 10 people that came up afterwards and wanted to talk and discuss and uh, and that was really nice. Yeah, kind of two different experiences, but I, I, they're both good and, and worthwhile, and I have fun doing all of it. I, I just like uh, to talk and to hear people's ideas and share the information. And I really hope that you continue to work with Ali and teach courses to people like me in the future because I think it's some fascinating material, fascinating, Great. interesting things. Well, Are you working you. on anything in particular now of it? You care to share? Um, Just, you know, the the directed study student, we've sort of just gotten started for this semester. Uh, You know, like I mentioned, we're trying different paths through the cipher to see if anything interesting pops up there. Even, 
you know, little observations. David Ranchak noticed in all of his statistical analysis that there are blocks that form an L in the cipher. It's a little bit hard to describe, but if you start at a certain symbol and then go down to and then uh, go over to, in other words, kind of like make an L, there are two of those that repeat. So it's, you know, A, B, C, C, B, A. They repeat like that, which almost implies like a folding or uh, some sort of manipulation of the cipher. So discovering little things like that is always beneficial. The, the idea that we skip a certain number of symbols and then the statistics of the language mirror English or French or something like that, you know, can, can lead somebody else to take that in a certain direction. So it's sort of these little incremental discoveries that, that could lead to something interesting. So we've been working on that. I'm teaching three courses this semester, and uh, I have a four-year-old and a 10-month-old that keep me very You're busy. busy, <laughs> so, busy person. Talk yeah. about deciphering, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. We're still trying to figure out what the 10-month-old is saying. Yeah. So that's my code-breaking challenge right now. Yeah. Well, this has been just really fantastic. I've enjoyed speaking with you so much. And thank you very much for spending this time with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, this is great what you guys are doing. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Ryan Garlick. Thanks so much for listening.